Welcome to another episode of Sustainable Goat. I'm Steve Cassingham, and I interview the greatest of all time in sustainability from the past, present, and into the future. In this episode, I talk with Vicki Nichols Goldstein, founder and executive director of the Inland Ocean Coalition. The IOC is focused on executing on major policies and educating others on the impact that the ocean has on the world, whether you live close to an ocean or not. Vicki has dedicated her life to the ocean, and her knowledge, passion, and experience really comes out in our talk. Let's dive right in. So let's start with you. I want to hear about your life and just where you grew up, where you come from, how you landed here in Boulder. Um, what's that journey kind of been like for you as a as a person? What have you always been a fan of in, in the world around you? Well, I grew up in a tiny little town in southern, southern New Jersey, um, right outside of the Pine Barrens. And it was called Woodstown. And our big thing that we had in our hometown was the Caltown Rodeo. It's the largest circuit rodeo east of the Mississippi. And you wouldn't know that you would have so many cowboys and cowboys and Bronco riders um, in my hometown, but that's, that's Woodstown. And I grew up across the street from my grandparents, my mom and papa, and he had five children. First mom was one of them. And so he was always supplementing his income with hunting, fishing, crabbing, clamming, trapping. And growing up, I had this magical situation across the street from me. So when they brought home the muskrats at four years old, I was learning how to skin them. And when it was time to flay the fish, I was very good at it. And then during the snapping turtle harvest, we would cut the heads off. Pop-Pop would put them in big barrels during the season. And the ones that had, or the females that had eggs, he would collect them. And then my job was to take them across the street to our yard where we put up chicken wire and bury the eggs I would water them and then try to collect the turtles before they got to the lake because they would hatch out around 60 days and scurry um, because he wanted to take them back to the areas that he trapped. So he had a a real sense of you take from the environment and you give it back. And I think that really instilled in me my love of nature and my love of water, the ocean, the wetlands, um, because I spent so much time growing up in that environment and really thinking about that cycle of life. I would love to dive more into that because, you know, most of the time people in sustainability don't have a history of fishing, hunting, trapping, that process. Do you find it that it's more uncommon than common? I'm very much of a weird bird in that one. I remember, so, you know, very small town, public schools. um, So when I got to Yale for my master's, I was talking with some folks and actually it was my my first birthday after arriving there and my prior to that my mom put together a care package from all of our family members so in the cooler my care package um, was muskrat snapping turtle and rabbit (laughs) and so she brought my care package up and um, I was having dinners with my friends cooking and they were like what the heck are you feeding us and my boyfriend at the time who is now my husband was really getting tired of muskrat dinners. So as a surprise, he distributed a bunch of muskrat to all of our friends, picked me up, took me out to a little favorite bar that I had, a little smoky bar in the neighborhood, uh, said he forgot his 
wallet at my house, went back, and it was like, surprise. And my friends all showed up with curried muskrat, barbecued muskrat, fried muskrat. And none of them who were, you know, involved in the environmental field had ever heard of such a thing, nor had they ever eaten any of these items. So, yes, they still remind me even to this day what a crazy um, background that I've had in the ocean and environmental conservation field. What do you think it taught you, though, um, like just about the bigger picture? Well, I think it really, I think it really helps to think that um, we're all connected, you know, and not everybody is privileged enough to go to the supermarket. So I think as a society, we really have to think about sustaining the land, protecting the land, protecting the water, protecting the watershed, protecting habitats. And in some cases, people are going to be, you know, harvesting in those areas. And so I think it also teaches you, I think, a little bit of tolerance with people because people come from different backgrounds, different geographic regions, um, different economic backgrounds. So it really is a matter of trying to find that common ground. Like, where do you connect? What what place can you start talking where you'll have a sense of ease and a sense of shared vision or direction? And I think having the background of conservation academically, growing up with a harvesting family, but also being very sustainable in their take, um, it gave me a really broad view of people and I think I have much more of an accepting um, personality versus like, no, I don't want to talk with them because they are such and such. So I think it's been really gr great for me in the work that I've been doing. So you went to Yale. And then um, what were your kind of goals when you were going to Yale? Did you know what you were going to do when you were at school? Or was it kind of like a discovery process? No, I knew since I was a kid. I remember one day I was spinning on a sandy beach probably third grade or so, and just having fun. We just came back from fishing, and I felt this searing pain in my foot. And I looked down, it was all bloody, and I was like, what is going on? And I cut my, my foot on glass, and that was back before plastic was a problem. And I just remember thinking, who could, who would throw trash or garbage or glass into an ocean or into a water body and I got cut and I just thought how horrible and really at that point I envisioned a magnet which obviously didn't work because it was glass but something like sucking up all the bad stuff out of the water sucking up all of the bad stuff out of the ocean and so I had this vision like I really wanted to figure out how to how to take bad things out of the ocean environment so that was sort of my eight-year-old perspective. And then as I grew, I went to college in Maine. I got a degree in human ecology, which is kind of like the current environmental studies um, with an emphasis in marine biology. And after graduation, I stayed and I directed the College of the Atlantic's Natural History Museum and ran their outreach program. And it was really all about learning about whales and how they're mammals and we're mammals and we need healthy environments and we need plenty of food and clean water and a healthy habitat. So it was going in that direction. And then after four years of directing the museum and um, running a program called Whales on Wheels and the Naugahyde Whale, which is a specific wait, education wait, yes, program. Wait. I want to go into this a little bit more. Wait, you had a you whale on wheels. Tell me more about this whale on wheels. So we had a 20-foot minke whale skeleton that was found in New England. We collected it, put it in the bug bin, for a couple of years, and the, um, the bugs ate all the flesh off, and then we developed a, an education program. 
And it was the giant skull of a 20-foot minke whale. And the boxes were scattered around before the program. And I would give the program. And then the idea was that people would collect the bones and put the skeleton together. So I would talk about habitat and movement and characteristics of the spine of the whale and how that is similar to our spine and the pectoral fins, which is kind of like our arms. And then they would assemble the bones based on the characteristics into the different sections. And then one by one, the group would put the skeleton together to actually see it form in front of them. So it was conservation, puzzles, interactive, and really engaging. So I traveled all around New England with Whales on Wheels and then taught people how to also do the program. And then the Naugahyde whale, which is also cool, it was a, uh, a replica of a 10-foot whale pilot or 10-foot pilot whale with removable muscles, bones, and organs. So I would unzip it, <clears throat> throw out the organs and all the different pieces, and we would talk about it very similar. We'd talk a little bit more about digestion and breathing, and then we would all assemble it, talk about how whales are mammals and breathing and the whole thing. So... I did that for um, four years after graduation. And then I started thinking, okay, this is so cool, teaching people, adults, different groups, but what was missing from my life was that policy piece. Like, okay, I can educate, but how can I help change the system? Yeah, when did you figure that out? Was that, um, like, was there a realization that you had of, okay, I can, I'm making a big difference this way in education, but there's a piece missing. Like, was there a moment where you kind of realized there needed to be more? Well, what was happening was I, I was feel, I was reading about different things that were and were not happening. And I, I kept seeing more of things that weren't happening that needed to be, whether or not it was uh, stronger regulations around air quality or um, stronger fishing regulations to make sure that we have bigger fish longer lasting fish in the ocean versus, you know, more take. So all of those issues started really bothering me because I really, I, I did a deep dive into what it would mean to protect the ocean. And I realized that we were not doing it. And that's what made me think I need to get a little bit more educated about how I can make a difference in the policy world. And then I chose Yale and, um, got into it, and then I focused while I was there on marine protected areas. Um, certainly learning about policy, but you know, when you're a graduate student, you can't go all over the place with oceans. So MPAs became my baby. Like, what is a no-take area? How do you establish a no-take area? What does it mean for the big picture? And um, Dr. Sylvia Earle, with her hope spots, we are in sync. And so she has been an inspiration for me within that framework. But back to my journey, um, I did that for a number of years and then, or excuse me, for a couple of years. And then I moved to California and was offered a position at Save Our Shores as their director. Actually, I have to pause on that because I forgot about DC. Oh yes, okay, DC. So before California. So I, um, when I was finishing up at Yale, I went to Washington for three days to interview staff members at the National Marine Sanctuary Program, which is part of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, because I needed to get more content for my research. 
And by the end of those three days, after a number of parking tickets, because I didn't realize if you don't move your car, you'll get numerous parking <laughs> tickets, um, I had a job offer. So I, after graduation, I moved to D.C. and I worked for NOAA, and uh, I did a, a lot of different things. But one was the, um, I worked on the environmental impact statement for the establishment of the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And I did all the response to comments and <clears throat> did the whole environmental impact statement, which looked at boundaries and options and yeah so how do you how do you go about that process like what so when you have a problem that you're trying to solve it's almost like a puzzle mm -hmm. how did how did you address that like from the NOAA perspective and how did that whole process so it's work? a number of years and I came in towards the end but a lot of it is about getting community input and NOAA is really very good at <clears throat> taking these ideas out to the public, you know, working with scientists in the geographic area, working with different advisory um, councils, looking at different interest groups, working with fishing groups. So they collect just an enormous amount of information, scientific and also kind of social information. Like if we establish a sanctuary, will it be supported? If we go with a big boundary, can we enforce it? If we go with a little boundary, will it meet the goals of environmental protection? So you are factoring all of those pieces in and then you put that all into a document which you then share out to the community and to other agencies. Then you get input from all of those and you have to summarize all of the response to comments and then you put out the final document and then there's a certain number of days in which the um, administration will say okay we're going with this boundary and we are going to make it official. So is that anytime you do any type of marine sanctuary or sanctuary for that matter is that the standard process? Yeah the standard process if you don't have an executive order which the president just says we're going to do this then you go through an administrative process with a tremendous amount of um, engagement. That's really, really cool because um, it seems like they look at it holistically as what it is from all the different sides. Yes. Um, how long does the process take from, hey, we think this would be a good idea to it is now a sanctuary? It has taken a variety of different approaches. Um, sometimes it can be a 10-year process before it is actually as the ideas are put on the table, and then you've got the gathering of information. Um, in other cases, if there's been a lot of initiative in the area and a lot of science has already been done, they can propose an area, and then NOAA can come in and then follow through a, a formal process to get to the other end. And in some cases, it can be done in a couple of years. Um, wow. So it really does depend on the climate, the administration, and some of the politics, whether you get the right support at the right time on the right side of the aisle. Yeah. So w when you fell into, well, not fell into this position, but when you got this position, how, how did it feel to kind of be in this position? Like you've been on the education side, now you're, you know, really deep on the policy side. Oh, it's um, awesome. Yeah. How was it for you just like as a person going through that process? Well, it was so exciting. I was in D.C. I was working on that environmental impact statement, um, and I was also working on contingency plans. So it was right about the time where the Oil Spill Act came onto the scene, and none of the sanctuary managers in the country really knew if there was an oil spill, what to do. So then I worked a lot on putting those plans together and how do you work with a Coast Guard? How do sanctuary managers work with their staff? How do they work with the community? So I was doing that. 
And then I was the liaison to the Santa Barbara Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary and the Elkhorn Slough National Estuarine Research Reserve. I love Elkhorn Slough. Yeah, I went on a field trip there when I was a kid. I'll, I'll never forget it. It was it was amazing. I love wetlands. I love oceans. I mean, so it was so for me it was so exciting. And I would go out and I could actually you know go to the sites and walk around and meet people and you know learn about what their problems are and then go back to headquarters and try to facilitate whether it was budget issues or science issues or equipment issues. So it was really fun. I felt like, oh, I finally, I finally made it outside of the just education. I'm actually doing something yeah. with agencies and with field uh, staff. And it was, it was so exciting. Wow. So what made you decide to go to California to actually make that shift in your life? So I was still in D.C. working for NOAA. And I thought, well, I'm not married. Um, I have a lot of flexibility. I've never lived on the West Coast. So I wanted to go to California. And it happened to be that my now husband, um, we met in grad school, he got into Berkeley. So we moved to California and I was in, I was in uh, Berkeley and I wasn't really all that happy. I was looking for more of a coastal opportunity. And so I spent a lot of my time looking for a job. And then I got an email one day from Save Our Shores saying, hey, your name has been recommended. Would you consider an interview? And I'm like, sure. So I went down and it was a blustery night and the waves were crashing and Save Our Shores had a tiny office at the Santa Cruz Harbor. And I interviewed and I remember <laughs> it's funny, one of the board directors asked me later, do you remember when you said this? And I was saying to the organization, okay, if you hire me, are you really ready for a big change? Because we're going to make things happen. And it was interesting because it was right after the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary was designated. I was very familiar with it because I did all the response to comment and wrote the documents. And uh, Dan Hafley, the director who was there, was kind of ready to close the chapter. He had been working to set the sanctuary up, and he was kind of like moving on. And then I came in, I'm like, okay, we've got a brand new sanctuary. Save Our Shores is going to get a brand new mission because it's no longer working to get it established. It's going to be the watchdog and the collaborator with NOAA to really make the sanctuary the best thing that it can be. And so I spent 10 years doing that. So what was your first day like? when <laughs> you were like, okay, this is my first day. Now okay. what? <laughs> Honestly, my first day was I asked for a budget. And they were like, well, you got the budget. And I'm like, I, I see the budget, but I really want to know how much money we actually have. Like, what's the reality of the budget? And they told me. And it was missing a zero, or actually a couple of zeros. <laughs> so that's when I realized, wow, there's not even enough money to pay me. So I um, figured out, um, I put an emergency board meeting together. <laughs> like, <laughs> First day, okay. We need I'm to like, meet. we need to talk. This is not exactly what you told me was the, the scenario. Anyhow, we worked it out and I started fundraising and doing a lot of uh, outreach with the community, um, 
There was so much to do. Um, we were in a tiny little second floor space. Jack O'Neill was my landlord, so you know, getting to know him was a blast. And he did some fundraisers with me on his catamaran, and we got a little bit more stable. Um, started working with the local media, really started to get a presence, and then we developed new programs that got people involved from different sections of the Central Coast. We opened up uh, an office up in Half Moon Bay. And we just went from one person to, you know, $20,000 budget in reality to over a half a million. So it was, it was great. It was so much fun. And, and so what, is, what does Save Our Shores kind of do as a whole? What was the mission that you shifted and what was kind of the initiatives that you guys were trying to keep and maintain? Well, the idea was, okay, we have a brand new National Marine Sanctuary and we have a federal agency who is governing it. Okay, let's see if we can work together. Well, along, federal agencies often have their hands tied. So one example was this man, who I think had great intentions, <clears throat> decided that he was going to start up a great white shark viewing tourist opportunity. And he went out there and would chum for sharks. He had a cage attached to the bottom of the ocean, and he would put divers in it. And one day I got a phone call from somebody, because I'd started up a Sanctuary Watch hotline. Someone saw a slick of blood and guts and oil drifting down near the state parks where there was a lot of windsurfers, and there was a lot of children. And we're like, what is going on? So we started researching it, and it turned out that he was getting this material from a slaughterhouse and chumming for sharks. Well, Noah had their hands tied a little bit because they've already gone through their regulations and they weren't about to actually just come up with a brand new one. So we engaged a lot <clears throat> with the public about bringing this issue to Noah's attention, um, encouraged them to put together a task force, did a lot of public outreach because when you start getting great white sharks all excited near Anya Nuevo, a state park, and you don't have a lot of feed except for children on the beach and ab divers and windsurfers, you're creating a really bad situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I'm, I'm sure the intentions were to actually educate people on sharks. Yes, like I said, I said but, in the beginning, it was a really yeah. nice man who, who had good intentions. So but the children seemed to be a yeah, little bit more Yeah, so that important. was a project. So a number of, you know, it took us a long time to get to the point where Noah was ready to issue new regulations. And so that was one example. So, you know, we worked with them to actually help shape the sanctuary, get more engagement on sanctuary issues, did celebrations. Um, we also worked a lot with uh, um, Neary Lagoon in Santa Cruz because there was a problem with stagnant water with really high bacterial levels going out onto the public beach and people were getting sick and they didn't have monitoring equipment at the time. So working with the, the different communities to raise that awareness. And I was always trying to do it in a way that was like, no, you know, you're wrong and you're bad. But it was like, you know, we have a problem. Let's figure out how we can work together. And so there was a lot of work around media and communications. And we held lots of public meetings with um, the community, I had a lot of panel discussions on different issues, whether it was the underwater sound, ATOC, which, or it was shark chumming, or it was water quality issues. It seemed like there was always something. So how did that approach, um, I guess, help shape the way you did things? Because, I mean, most of the time it's I mean, coming to the table and being like, okay, we have a problem, let's solve this. 
how how was that narrative different? Like, was it something that was harder to overcome in the community, or was well, one of the things I did early on was because my office was at the harbor, I would oftentimes hang out at the docks and get to know the fishermen, and then I would be invited on their boat, and we'd have some beers, and it was kind of like, oh my god, this environmentalist is talking to us. And, and having beer with us. And having beer and with us. And fishing with us. And yeah. she can cut a fish. <laughs> exactly. And so um, I ended up going fishing with them. They, I was on the cover of one of their magazines holding a salmon. Um, their local membership, uh, they, they ended up being a member of Save Our Shores. And so when problems arose about the sanctuary, like I think at one point they were, the sanctuary was talking about um, fees, like they would charge fees to go into the sanctuary and the fishermen would come in. So I would help, the, I would be a liaison in essence. And the idea I really carry on with me now <clears throat> is like, okay, there's, there's never only one side. There's, there's oftentimes gray sides and personal concerns and personal issues. But the idea is like, let's have an open dialogue so we can talk about it and then figure it out. So um, in the end, the sanctuary, you know, didn't pursue that. Um, we had great relationships. I was the chair of the conservation um, seat for the Sanctuary Advisory Council for the Monterey Bay Aquarium as the director of Save Our Shores and spent a lot of time with the fishermen. And actually, there was a big issue with the fishermen killing sea lions because, and it's still an issue now, but it was, um, you know, we would get together, we would talk about it, we would have meetings at the harbor. There were issues around dredging for the fishing community. But it was always a situation where we could talk about it, work through the issues, and then in the end, it, you know, some of the really big ones we were able to resolve by um, addressing whether or not the sanctuary would or wouldn't regulate a certain item or a certain... Um, situation whichever one we were talking about but it was it was always about engagement do you think there's a there's kind of like a middle ground if you will in a lot of these issues that that people aren't seeing initially um, when they kind of come at it with two different mindsets yeah and actually we're going to be seeing the middle ground right now because we have a new administration who is pushing offshore wind which i think is a great idea we need to get off fossil fuels but with wind it will also bring controversy. <clears throat> what will the windmills do to migrating birds? Will the installation and siting of windmills impact the acoustics of underwater mammals? Will these windmills impact the fishing industry? So, you know, there, it's never, there's always I'm mumbling. There's always going to be something, and nothing is ever going to be perfect. So you just are going to have to figure out um, how to work with people because it's not black and white. Absolutely, we need to reduce fossil fuels and go with wind. And absolutely, we need to take in local concerns to get the right sighting. And absolutely, we're going to have to give and take to move us into a more sustainable future. So whether or not I've been doing this for 20, 30 years with those previous issues, it's always the same. It is always the same. You have to get something. In order to get something, you're going to have to give something up. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of how you're going to do that collaboratively. Yeah. And so you decided to take from Save Our Shores, I mean, all this experience and working collaboratively with the community, you decided to start your own. 
<laughs> so when was the decision of like, hey, this has been a good run. Let's, uh, I'm going to go do something new. Okay. So I left Save Our Shores. Um, my husband got a job in Virginia Tech and the kids were little. So we moved to Blacksburg and it was terribly sad. We had a big party. It was a big roasting for me, actually. It was really fun. Um, fishing community came out, conservation community came out, sanctuary folks. It was wonderful. And then I moved into the woods for five years and raised kids, and then I worked with a land trust, where I got more experience in inland, watershed health, riparian zones, land protection. And I did that and worked, um, worked in that area. And then uh, my husband got an opportunity to move to Colorado to work with a university here in uh, Boulder, Denver. So we moved here again, and I'm like, oh my gosh, Bruce. We're still inland. You're, you're taking me further yeah. inland, further, not closer to the coast. So, and you know, got everybody settled in. And um, I was really just like, just feeling this urgency of wanting to get back and do something with the ocean. Yeah, why so. the ocean so much? Like, why, why has the ocean been such a tie for you and your life? You know, I wish I knew. I mean, if I could have gotten rid of that tie, my life probably would have been a lot easier. <laughs> I probably just could have gotten a job here in town and not have to start something from scratch. But um, it's, I, it's just such a deep passion, I don't even know. I mean, it's just like a burning passion of you've got to do something to protect the ocean. I felt that way since I was a kid. And just because I live in Colorado doesn't mean I'm not going to keep doing it. I just had to find a way to do it, though. <laughs> yes, exactly. But but if there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. So I started off, a couple of things happened. I um, I consulted, I guess, three different people primarily. Uh, one is Wallace J. Nichols, who runs Blue Mine. I set up a time to talk with him in Davenport. So I went out there because I was back in California for a family event. And we spent three or four hours and talking about, it, like, what would it look like? What would I do? How would I do it? And then he set me up with my first Facebook page. He's like, I'm going to help. I'm going to kind of catapult you into this. And he helped me do that. And that was really cool. And then I got a hold of Mike Sutton, who was my Packard Foundation program officer, who's been working a lot with other organizations, said, you absolutely have to do it. It has never been done. You've got to do it. And if you can do it, or if it's going to get done, you're the one to do it. And then David Helvark, who runs Blue Frontier, he was like, you got to do it. So he was on a book tour. And he's like, can you help me out, Vicki? I'm going to be out in Denver. So I was like, well, you know, there's a dive shop in town. So I contacted Ocean First. And um, he stayed here. We went to the dive shop. He spoke. And I'm sitting in a room with like 50 divers. And he's talking about diving. And people are really engaged. And I'm looking around going... There's a huge group of people right here within five miles of my home that love the ocean. Mm -hmm. And all those three pieces started coming together. And then I decided, well, I'm going to have a blue drinks. And I called up a bar, a restaurant bar, and said, can I have some people over? And a bunch of us started emailing. And I got there, and about 30 people showed up. And then somebody said, well, Vicky's got get up on the bar. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll get up on my knees on the bar stool. And I said, you know, this is my idea. This is what I'm thinking about doing. And people clapped, and they're like, this is really great. Let's do it. And that became the beginning of this idea of a Colorado Ocean Coalition. Wow. And Wait, we, so, you were, so you were in this bar. You guys were having this event, and you just— Went for it and pitched it on the spot? I went for it and pitched it. They were like, what are you thinking? What's your Wait, vision? Were you nervous? No, 
I didn't know exactly what I was going to say until I started talking, though. And it was in my head. And it was just basically, hey, if you look around, everybody on the coast or the people who are most active are coastal people working for ocean protection. What about the rest of the country? What about us? What about the teachers, the photographers, the divers? Um, I, think we can, I think we can do something together. And that was the beginning. And I had blue drinks on a regular basis. We'd meet up at different bars. People would come in. And it just started becoming a regular thing. And then I took a group of people to Washington, D.C. for the Blue Vision Summit. And I unrolled the banner and hung it up. And people were like, what is this? The Colorado Ocean Coalition? Seriously? And that was sort of the coming out. And then Sylvia Earle, Dr. Sylvia Earle, was enthusiastic. And she's like, hey, maybe I can come out and kind of help you with your first year anniversary. And then we started gathering a bunch of people, people from her team, volunteers. And I was like, whoa, I can't have her show up in a bar. That's just kind of embarrassing. <laughs> doesn't seem official enough. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So that was the beginning of my first Making Waves event where we had people coming in and because her name was associated with it, oh, we had just like, we had artists and filmmakers and it was a really exciting time and had a fundraiser associated with that. And that went on for um, 11, 12, that went on for three years. And then we had the big flood week before the which, event. Which mentioned, uh, for those that don't live in Colorado or right. have been to Colorado or know about this, what was the flood? Because um, everybody talks about it, and unless you were here, it's yeah. hard to well, fathom. Well, if you look out the, behind me, this beautiful open space, that was a river. And what happened was we had a fire prior to that that hardened the ground. And then we had a big rainstorm that just hovered over us for a couple of days and it hit the rain hit the hillside and slid down so that you can see some scars behind us inundated the rivers with debris and a huge portion of Colorado flooded from Lyons to Boulder to Denver east um, lives were lost vehicles were lost we were flooded and it just rained like hell and uh, it was pretty impactful. And I think back in 2013, I think that's when, at least here locally, there was a lot of conversations about fires and climate change and starting to look at these events. They're happening more often. They're happening, happening more frequently. And we can certainly say, based on Hurricane Ida last week, the fires that we're experiencing now, we're definitely trending in that direction. <laughs> mm -hmm. Definitely. And so... Yeah, you basically took this, I guess, idea that you had and, and turned it more into a movement naturally and, and built a community around you. Yeah. And then we're like, here it is. Yeah. This is what it is. And it, it just, it, and it was really a lot of engagement. You know, I kind of led the way because I was dedicated and kind of one of my friends, actually, Steve Weaver, who runs the dive shop in Southern Boulder said, Vicki, you're like a bulldog once you get an idea. So yeah, I just continued to work. And then um, early on, I decided that I would team up with the Ocean Foundation and be a project as opposed to starting a whole big nonprofit because I didn't realize I was going to be here through our 10th year anniversary, which is this year. So um, but it's all worked out. So I'm a project of the Ocean Foundation. And now we have six staff and 
congratulations. It's really growing. And then back in 2017, as I was kind of talking about our history, I moved more, or I moved more in the direction of um, training volunteers and really helping to take the message that I thought was so important and help establish that throughout different regions. So we started setting up chapters and helping volunteers understand what we are all about. And then in 2017, we revamped to be the Inland Ocean Coalition. And now we've got 16 chapters and we've taken our volunteer training, our Inland Ocean Ambassador training program online. And we educate about 100 people a year now so they can be leaders in their communities in Utah and Arizona and upstate New York and Nebraska and in all the inland areas that I envisioned 10 years ago that would be more involved in ocean protection initiatives. So what does it mean for someone who <clears throat> is living inland and doesn't have access to the ocean or hasn't seen the ocean? Why is it important to look at it, learn about it, care about it, protect it? Yeah. Well, I kind of start with the basics. Like, hmm, do you like to breathe? <laughs> and uh, usually the answer is yes. And um, just something as simple as more than half of the oxygen that we breathe on land comes from ocean plants. Really? Whether it is the tiny plankton, the phytoplankton, the seagrasses, the kelp, um, the mangroves along the coast, um, they're all absolutely critical. And so we really need to keep those habitats and that plant life intact. So that's very important. So they say that the trees are the lungs of the earth, um, but everybody, I guess, mostly thinks of the ones that are well, on the land, yes, which they on, help. Yes, but. yeah, yeah. Well, we need more than one lung. So I think that the ocean is kind of the, the one lung, the, the trees can be the other lung because it's all, it's all contributing, but it's a massively big piece of our planet that produces oxygen. The other thing is many people love to eat seaweeds or seafood and I think given the fact that um, international fishing can be very very dicey, not very sustainable, having a an educated US group of people who understand that we do have the gold seal fishery standard, the Magnuson-Stevens Act. And by keeping that strong and keeping, you know, in communication with our senators and house reps who will be voting on whether to weaken it, which means let's take more fish, let's take bigger fish, or keep it strong by saying let's make sure that we're only taking out so much and keeping those populations healthy. And then also that we are looking at unsustainable fishing practices. You know, these big trawling nets that are smashing the ocean floor and destroying habitat. We need to eventually start getting rid of that kind of fishing technique and going into more sustainable. So that's just two. So since you grew up doing that, um, you know, what can that look like at scale? Because I mean, obviously the the intention is always to be as, especially even as a fisherman, is probably to be as, you know, good to the ocean as possible because you're you're fishing in the ocean. Um, but has it been a drive of consumption? Has it been a drive of demand? Or has it been a just a drive that more is better? What What is the kind of picture of why that became such a thing? Because fishing practices haven't changed as much, but it's kind of the scale at which they're being done. And then also, obviously, the impact that it's having long term. Yeah. Well, I think if you look back, I mean, there's a couple of different things. If you look back 40, 50 years, 
um, and look at the size of the fish that we were taking out of our oceans, they were enormous. They were big. There was fish they were able to reproduce. The bigger the fish, the more sperm, the more eggs. And there was a sustainability element to it. What has really been problematic has been the international fishing because there's a lot of illegal and unreported fishing happening worldwide. And those fishing fleets are absolutely devastating some of the smaller island nations who really need to have fish for their economy and their support. The other piece of it, you go into a fish market, a large market, and you try to figure out where this is from. It is very international. We're just not bringing fish in from our coast. Like I said, the U.S. fisheries market is very sustainable, but on a larger scale, it isn't. And I think people need to start recognizing that you know, we need to think about the bigger picture and what food we eat and how that really impacts the ocean at large. And we are beginning to have more interaction with international fisheries and illegal and um, unregulated reporting. But there's much more work to be done in that area. So what does that look like when you are, I guess, looking at the business as a, as a whole, as a global thing? You, you go to the grocery store, you can get fish. And most of the time it says product of whatever country it is. Is it more on the consumer's responsibility to stop buying or is it on the grocery store side to kind of adjust how they're buying? Because I know probably sustainable fisheries in the U.S. are slightly more expensive because you're getting essentially a better product. But at the end of the day, you're not having to ship it across a ship across the country. You're using better practices. So what does that how does that problem get solved on like the consumer standpoint? Because as a consumer, you have to know how to look yeah. better. Yeah. Well, if you talk about it from just the consumer standpoint, standpoint, um, you are really looking to find out if that is a sustainable fish. And so there's a number of different apps. The Monterey Bay Aquarium has an app that we used to hand out seafood cards. So you can go to an app if you're at a restaurant or if you're at a market and be like, okay, hmm, oh dear, that's a wreck fish. Whoa. That seems odd. Wrecks are really deep and dark. Deep and dark wrecks usually have fish that are deep and don't reproduce that quickly. This just happened to me recently. That's why, because <laughs> I'm like, this is odd. And you find out that it's not a sustainable fish. So not all fish that come into our markets are sustainable. So yes, as an individual, you can absolutely take a role in that. At the same time, on a federal policy understanding that there's this act called the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which is really important. And every couple of years in Congress, that comes up. And so that's what we do. When that act comes up, we are advocating f to keep it strong. And that's where consumers and supporters of ocean protection can play a role, writing letters to their senator, writing letters to the committee, um, understanding what that really means. And then, of course, you have then the international um, you have the international situation, which is a lot harder for us to deal with on that level. And there are some initiatives that are happening. But I think as the U.S. and some of our trade agreements and some of our relationships with other countries, that can also help. But I think really for us in our conversation, it really is about the consumer understanding how they can make a difference and then holding our federal government accountable for the U.S. Fisheries Act and then supporting the fishermen that are doing the right thing. Well, and for, for a consumer, what about the health implications of 
eating a fish that is more sustainably caught versus not. Because that's the interesting thing. I mean, if you want to dive into microplastics, we can. But the idea that fish are eating microplastics, therefore, when we eat the fish, we eat the microplastics. And then it's then just the cycle that keeps going and going right, and going. Right. And that is a that is a delicate topic because we know that microplastics are coming in and whether or not you're eating bivalves like clams, oysters, mussels that are pulling in these um, very small pieces including plastics. You know, there's an estimate that we're consuming about a credit card size worth of plastic annually. Um, but then at the same time, you know, those of us who are advocating sustainable seafood are saying eat lower on the food chain because we want to keep the big fish growing longer, producing more, because we've already eliminated 90% of our large megafauna fish, and we really need to lighten up the pressure on them, like a big tuna is in the swordfish. So, like I said earlier, there's no free ride. You know, if you want to eat seafood, you will most likely consume plastic. If you want to get your omegas, maybe you want to go to your flax and your plant sources. But there is no free ride. And so how do you integrate that knowledge into what you do with Inland Ocean Coalition now? Because, um, yeah, it's right on the topic. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't want to be the person or the organization who comes in and judges you morally on your choices. What I like to do as the organization is to say, this is what's happening out there. This is what we're trying to do to maintain the protection and the conservation of the ocean to reduce plastics. And you have a whole suite of things that you can do, everything from you know, going vegan or choosing sustainable. But I don't want to be that organization that gets in your face about that. So we provide education. We really work on advocacy um, with our political leaders. Um, we try to let people know what their choices are. And we try to do all of this joyfully because this is a really hard topic. It's hard when you see fish um, caught in nets and turtles and manta rays, you know, animals that you really love dying and getting thrown back as bycatch because the fishing practice is, isn't sustainable. Um, you know, it's hard seeing whales where their stomach is impacted by plastic or entangled animals. So we get bad news every day on the ocean. And so in order for us to continue our work, we do try to do it with a little joy and fun. And that's why we have our Masquerade Mermaid Ball. That's why we have contests, costume contests. Um, that's why we, when we have creek cleanups, we, we try to have fun. Because if you are going forward in this area, which can be very depressing and sad, and you don't have a sense of hope and joy, then why bother? I mean, we have a whole new generation that's growing up, and you want to you know, put a hand out to them and give them hope, and you want to provide fun opportunities so they'll tell their friends, and they want to work with us, and they want to start a chapter, and we want them to you know, go through the ambassador training so they can get empowered and go make a difference in their community. So I think that's a really important component of what we do at the Inland Ocean Coalition. Yeah, I think you hit that topic really nicely because it – it can be a very depressing subject. I mean, that's, and that's what I think a lot of the marketing around the advocacy has been, has mm -hmm. been, look at this, this is sad, this is sad, we need you to act. Yeah. 
but people don't know how. Yeah. And I think that's always been the hardest hurdle is you, you almost are, I guess, kind of upset because you, you want to make a change. You don't know how, but then you don't, you don't want to keep looking at it, but you're forced to look at it. And then there becomes a negative connotation with the idea of conservation in some circles. Yeah. And so I think bringing the joy to it, like that's, that's the key, like make it fun. And, and I feel like you've been doing that almost your entire career. So, and like, how yeah. is the community of Inland Ocean Coalition, like the community of supporters, volunteers? I, I think the community is great. We're, we are so fortunate to have people from all walks of life join us, whether they're donors or volunteers or um, musicians, artists, um, filmmakers. I think people rally when there is an opportunity an opportunity to be positive and do something great for the water the ocean the creeks the the, the reservoirs the lakes um, I think people are really drawn to water I know I certainly am I mean I'm out there that res paddling as much as I can and swimming in our local pool that's saline because people around water are happier and so we just want to continue that, as Wallace J. Nichols says, the blue mind. That blue mind is that healthy, happy state of mind that you can be in. And you want to avoid the red mind, the gray mind. You want to avoid that, that, the place that takes you down. And so water is that, that element that brings us all together, that can bring us happiness. And we want to focus on that as we do our very difficult and sometimes depressing work yeah what are you guys working on right now that's um <clears throat> kind of been the focus for you are you working on oh um, i'm excited big policy yeah. like what's 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 yeah. the mission well, so the, far the biggie there's a couple of big things um what has really emerged recently is the recognition that the ocean can be a solution to climate change. And before it was always oh the ocean's the victim the ocean's warming the corals are dying you know, the fish are dying, but what we're doing, working across the whole U.S., actually around the world, is to recognize that if we can put in $10 billion to coastal restoration and really restore those living shorelines, um, don't use concrete and riprap, but let's get these natural habitats back that can actually protect coastal communities and different habitats. You know, put in money, to, money into... Um, um, the Conservation Corps, getting people working around the environment on these projects, um, implementing windmills to really reduce the amount of carbon that we're pulling out, of restoring mangroves, um, this idea of 30 by 30, which we've been working on for a long time. Let's protect 30% of the ocean and 30% of land by 2030. Again, it's maintaining habitats. And the idea is, if you leave things alone and not put either harsh things like carbon into that area or you don't go in there and disturb the habitat, whether it's through fishing or any kind of take, things can come back. Things can restore. Things can just be as they used to be. So we're working on all of those policy issues and writing letters to our editor do, or editors, um, writing letters to the committees, um, incorporating this into our training, and really trying to let people know, like, we're in a really exciting time right now. We have an administration that can do amazing things. So let's get it done. Mm -hmm. 
Definitely. And so when, yeah, that, I think that's one of the coolest things is that you guys are actually taking action on a lot of the things and doing it in a way where it's, it's letting nature do its thing. What does it mean to be in nature to actually experience that? Like whether it's with water or not, do you, do you advocate for people to actually <laughs> just go outside and get in nature yes. and that kind of connects you? I do. I mean, I live on the open space and I have to say every day I just walk in the open space. Sometimes it's only for like 10 minutes because of work or different things. But yeah, you can find great peace um, going to your local park, going to a water fountain, um, taking a walk around a lake. And then of course, if you can get to go scuba diving or snorkeling, that's always phenomenal. But yeah, just getting near water will do amazing things. I mean, you can even get a shower. It'll kind of turn the switch, I think, or a bath. But yeah, I think connecting with nature is really important. And um, I just had an experience a couple of weeks ago. Um, our family went to the Big Island in Hawaii, <clears throat> and we went diving. And when we were diving, we saw both spinner dolphins and large mantas. And I just felt, I was, I just felt such joy. Like I was seeing these beautiful animals. I was seeing this baby dolphin being kind of coddled by the other dolphins, and they would swim around us, and then the mantis would come in really close and trusting, and it just restored my commitment to why I really want to protect the ocean. And I feel often the same way if I'm out paddleboarding and I see a great blue heron. You know, just knowing that there are animals out there that really need habitat, and we can make a positive influence on that habitat, whether it's through regulatory framework, policies, or just simply caring for the environment. It's, it's a really beautiful thing. So what can someone do in their community if they, whether they want to get involved with Inland Ocean Coalition or even just want to kind of support their local community, what's something that somebody can do that's kind of easy to just start doing? Sign up for our newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely that's, one of them. For that's sure, the easiest thing possible. Just sign up for the newsletter. We talk about all these issues. On our website, we have action items that you can do. Um, we have our ambassador training, which we offer three times a year online, two hours for five weeks. And then that gives you all kinds of tools. And then we support you after that. So then you can become a leader in your community. Um, and that's how we teach people or guide people to write their letters to the editor and give them all those tools so they can be an advocate with knowledge in their community. And, of course, donating to that organization because there's so much work to do. And I love my staff, and I want to keep them. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really important. <laughs> and so what are what's kind of the future goals and and also the other projects that you guys are working on now how do you i mean you've you've hit the 10 year mark yeah wow that's i think amazing. you might be going farther than that so what's I, kind of the future I for you i think we are going to keep going i mean at one point i thought this was just going to be a hobby but no i feel committed and i feel like our supporters are committed well i guess in a perfect world we would have a a chapter in every state and in an even more perfect world we would have a chapter in every um, House of Representative District, and we would just really be. It would be a. It would be common knowledge for any person who wants to protect the ocean or the watershed to do so, because the idea would be so commonplace. We wouldn't be that odd organization doing inland ocean, but eventually the organization would grow, collaborate with other groups, 
and everybody could have an opportunity to protect the ocean and the watershed in their region. Hmm. I love that. I And I think doing it as a community is kind of the best way to do it because um, a little bit from a lot of people goes a long way. Nobody should have to work alone. A, it's no fun at all. And of course, I like to bring joy to this organization. But um, And it's much more effective to have, to have partners and people and groups that you like to work with to work with you. It's it's the way to go. If you were to give a suggestion of some, what somebody could do today um, to just kind of further their better purchasing decisions, anything, what would be like one suggestion that you'd say would make a big impact on kind of your overall mission? Stop buying single-use plastic. <laughs> you can do that any place. And support the Break Free from Plastics Act. And you can find that out, more about that on our website. How has it become a problem? Because has it been the just pure creation of plastic? Again, they, they created plastic as an alternative to glass, probably, to make things a little bit easier to ship, a little bit easier to get to people. There was good intention behind it. It was amazing intention. I mean, it was like if you look back at the original videos, it was to make women's lives easier. You know, we don't have to do all those dishes. We just toss it away. Plastic cut cutlery, plates, it was all about convenience. And then we recognized that, wow, what do we do with it? And so we started shipping it away. Um, you know, there was some recycling opportunities, but honestly, the chemical industry really co-opted that recycling symbol and started putting that on everything. And then people started thinking, well, wait a minute, I can recycle that because it's got the symbol, where in reality, that symbol is very specific to your geographic area. Um, and a lot of times people don't take the time to contact their recycling facility to find out if they take one through seven, which is highly unusual, or if they only take one and two. But, you know, educating yourself, but if you're not going to get educated, just don't buy it. And then the problem with plastic is once it's in the environment, whether it's in the open space and blowing around in the trees and it gets into the streams and then it works its way down or it gets smashed by cars, it starts breaking up. And plastic never goes away. <clears throat> it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until we have microplastics that are now found everywhere in the world. You know, in the atmosphere, we've had it raining in Colorado recently. In the last couple of years, they've been able to determine it's in our air, it's in our rivers and creeks, it's in our watersheds, it's in our animals, and it's in our bodies. So really, the only way that we are going to deal with this is to stop single-use plastic production and stop the purchase and use of it. And that's why I'm so excited about the new Break Free from Plastics Act, which I'm hoping we will get through <clears throat> the chambers and be able to be signed in the next couple of years. So go to the website, Google Break Free from Plastic Act, and be, be a champion of that if you want to see our plastic situation eventually get better. Well, and I think it's such an exciting time for material science, too, right now. I mean the the creation of new materials and the ability to make things out of recycled materials. I mean, it's an exciting frontier to where you can take a previous waste stream and turn it into something new and extend that life. But then at the same time, you can actually make something of quality to make it last a long time as well. Because yeah. um, that's a lot of the conversations I have with a lot of people is that 
you know, sustainability isn't just about using something that's reusable or recycled. It's about using something and making it last. It's the longevity of that said thing, because no matter what, you can't get rid of everything completely. It's not a, you can get pretty close to a circular economy overall, um, but, you know, energy is always expended in some way, shape or form in the creation or destruction of products. So, you know, what, what can that picture look like in terms of how do we consume in a way where not only is it more sustainable, but it's also well-made? Yeah, and I think, you know, talking about that in the context of clothing, fast fashion, um, you know, and certainly we know that many of our clothes will have microfibers in it, plastics, and then when we wash it, it goes out through the washing cycle to the water treatment facility. Water treatment facility doesn't have the capacity to filter out those little microfibers that then they then go into the stream and wow, where did all that microplastic in our ocean come from? Well, just imagine all these streams coming in from all the U.S., just the laundry. We're not even talking about the bags and all the other physical pieces that end up into the ocean. So we have a lot of work ahead of us, and we have so many opportunities to turn this around. And as you're saying, there are technologies, there are behaviors, um, there's education, but I try to focus on, okay, we know, I mean, we are not, we know what we need to do. We just need to get off our lazy butts and do it. <laughs> I, I totally agree with that. It's, it's just doing, just walk the walk. One, what's, what's your most, <clears throat> what lights you up the most about doing what you do? Like, what is your favorite part of building this organization and having such an impact? My favorite, oh my God, I love so much about this organization. My favorite part, I guess, I guess my favorite part has been 10 years ago when I started this, I would talk to people or I would give a presentation and I'd get this look like, like, like kind of this contorted look like, um, excuse me, honey, you know, we're about a thousand miles from any ocean that you're going to come up with or, or like, what, what does that have to do with us? It's kind of like a blow off, like. Like, you're just wasting your time. What are you talking about? And so what I love now, when people ask me what I do or what's the point, and I mention it, and all of a sudden, instead of them looking like, ugh, their face lights up, and they're like, oh, my gosh, that is such a good idea. Like, people are getting it. And I think that's probably the most inspiring thing for me. And it hasn't been just me. I mean, it's been all of us working together, talking about it, you know, social media, the news. But I think now people get, they are connected to water and the ocean and they want to do something about it. That was not the case when I started this. So I get a lot of, I get really happy with the positive responses. I mean, it's been an incredible journey that you've had and to be able to make this organization and movement and you've had an impact on both coasts and around the country inland. Like you've kind of canvassed the U.S. Are you going to are you going to go international? <laughs> One step at a time. <laughs> Let me let's try to get the U.S. squared away before I go to international. <laughs> we have enough problems. There's enough work to be done to keep us busy for decades here in the U.S. Um, clearly, we will we have some collaborations internationally and, you know, the stuff with um, the IUU and the fishing and certainly with the climate. You know, we we will continue our networking and collaborations. But I think our focus is going to be U.S.
That's awesome. Thank you so much for just taking this time to dive into all these concepts and talk about microplastics and traveling literally all over with a minky <laughs> whale, um, which that was probably my favorite story, by the way. Um, it's, it's just, it's an incredible journey that you've been on. Um, you've had so much service that you've put into this cause. And I think the ocean thanks you every time you hop into it. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat. I highly recommend that you check out the Inland Ocean Coalition site, get involved with their newsletter, and most importantly, learn about the policies that they are working on. And more details will be in the show notes below as well. Each and every episode that has been recorded has been a truly great experience, and the community that has been building around it has been so special. If you've been enjoying these episodes, share your favorite one with a friend or post it on social media. Your support is so appreciated, and the more the community grows, the more impact that we can have on the world. Thanks again for listening to Sustainable Goat.